One of the things I love the most about the summit is the fact that we all come from different various religious and church backgrounds. I mean, some of you have never been to church before, ever, in your entire life until you came to the summit. And I, I think that's fantastic that you um, are experiencing church for the first time with us. I'm, I'm honored by that. Thankful for that. Others of you kind of grew up in church for a little while. You were in church for a period of your life, and and then you got away from it, and you're just now coming back. We're so glad you're coming back. We're so glad you're with us. We're so glad that you're experiencing church kind of summit style, if you could could say that. Um, But there's other people, kind of like me, who grew up in church. I, I I don't know how many of you had that experience, but that was kind of like my upbringing. I was I kind of always in church, and I'm very thankful for my heritage. I'm very grateful for uh, what I was taught in terms of who God is and, and at least the information about Jesus and coming to earth and, and all of that. However, it did come with a lot of baggage. i got to be honest and let you know, the kind of churches I grew up in came with a lot of religious baggage. In that, I think the technical term that most people use to describe the kind of churches I grew up in uh, is legalistic. They were legalistic churches. Churches that were all about the rules. All about a long list of do's, do all of these things, and especially a long list of don'ts. And the list of don'ts always was longer than the list of do's. I mean, just so many rules. We just couldn't keep up with all of it, and, and it constantly kept changing. We began to identify ourselves in these churches and became known for all the things that we were against. We were known for what we were against. And sadly, we were also known for who we were against. I mean, if you think about it, it's just kind of sad. And we were against most, it seemed like. Um, more than not. And anyone who disagreed with us, we were against them. If you didn't see it, the way we saw it, you didn't believe the way we believe, you didn't do it the way we did it, that not only we were against what we were against, we were against you for not being against what we were against. It's just kind of a mess. But even today, still, I think, unfortunately, church in general and Christians in general, unfortunately, are still kind of understood that way by what they're against and, and, and what they kind of stand against and, and push to the side and stiff arm. I mean, even in our culture today, and it comes out so clearly like in a political year, like we're in a political year where there's a big election coming up before the end of the year, probably. And so uh, this really becomes evident because Christians and churches and unfortunately Christianity We've kind of lost our voice. Well, no wonder we've lost our voice. No wonder we've lost our voice because people kind of group us in with, oh, they're just against everything, and anybody that disagrees with them, they're against them. No wonder. No wonder we're deemed as irrelevant. No wonder we're seen kind of as out of touch. No wonder the message of Jesus' love and hope gets lost in all the religious rhetoric because somewhere along the way, We began to be known for what we were against and, heartbreakingly, who we were against. There's got to be a better way. 
There's got to be an alternative to this. And fortunately, there is, and that's what we're going to talk about in the next few moments. Instead, we can become a church and people and followers of Jesus who are known for who we are for, not what we are against. And do you see the difference? We want to be known for who we are for, not what we are against. Now, i got to let you know that if you're going to be a person and we're going to be a church that is known for who you are for and not what you are against, it's going to be messy. It's going to be controversial. And eventually, you will be misunderstood. But that is the way of Jesus. Being known for who you're for not being known for what you're against is the way of Jesus. By the way, kind of kicking back a moment to last week, the whole concept of love first is a four kind of focus. It is a four focus. And what you need to know that maybe you didn't know up until now and, and what we all need to get crystal clear on is the fact that that's who Jesus was. Jesus was for. In fact, Jesus was for people because God is for people. Jesus made it very clear that he was for people that nobody else was for because he wanted everyone to know that God was for them. He wanted them to get the bigger picture. The bigger picture of how God postures himself towards creation. God's posture and position towards creation is that he is for people. And he is for all people. He is for everyone. Now, I know this brings up a lot of questions, and we'll get there in just a few minutes, but you just need to know that Jesus was for people. And the reason Jesus was for people and was known for who he was for and not what he was against it's because he wanted to make it his mission to communicate to the world in no uncertain terms that God is for people. And still to this day, nothing has changed. You see this over and over and over again in Jesus' ministry. I, I want to take just a, a few minutes and, and peer into a, a moment, and a period of time where this becomes so clear Specifically, when Jesus first met one of his closest disciples, a guy named Matthew. When Jesus first met Matthew, the series of events that played around their meeting and their first encounter kind of shows us that this, this is true. Jesus was known for who he was for. Now, Matthew's also had, he also had another name that he was known as, and it was called he was called Levi. So in a minute, you're going to see that this guy named Levi, we're talking about Levi. When we're talking about Levi, we're not talking about Levi's. Genes weren't invented yet. And so we're talking about this guy named Matthew, who is a, was about to become a disciple of Jesus. So let's peer in on this moment. As Jesus walked along, Mark recorded this for us. As Jesus walked along one day, he saw Levi, Matthew, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. We'll come back to that. 
follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi, Matthew, got up and followed him. Now, this is fascinating on two accounts. Account number one, this is fascinating, that Jesus would look to Matthew, a tax collector, and say, follow me. I want you to be my disciple. The second account that makes this so fascinating is the fact that Matthew actually got up and followed Jesus. And here's why. Matthew was a tax collector. Now, you and I, that kind of falls flat on us because we weren't living in the first century. But let me just kind of give you a little background. Tax collectors were not seen in a positive light in the first century. Specifically, the kind of tax collector that Matthew was was the kind of tax collector that worked in cahoots or in cooperation, even dishonestly, with the Roman Empire. And the Romans imposed stiff taxes on the Jews. And so guys like Matthew, it was their job to collect these taxes from the Jewish people, and they were allowed to tack on anything else that they wanted to add to the Roman required tax. And they would often stiff people. They would often take advantage of people and gouge people for even more, and they could put it in their own pockets. Most tax collectors were very wealthy, but wealthy from dishonest gain. And everybody knew it. But as long as the Romans got what they wanted, they really didn't give a rip. What guys like Matthew did to get it. So the fact that Jesus would come to a tax collector, you'll see it in a minute. And then the fact that Matthew said, sure, I'll leave this, this lucrative, albeit dishonest, business and follow you, this rabbi, this guy that I'm sure he'd heard about by now, that some were claiming he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, he is the promised Savior of the world. The fact that this went down is fascinating. Let's keep, let's keep going. Later, we're not quite sure how later, but later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples, all the other guys that were there, that were following Jesus already, to his home as dinner guests. So we're going to have a party. We even want to let everybody know, hey, I'm following Jesus. We're, we're going to celebrate. But there are some other people there, along with many tax collectors and disreputable sinners. So Matthew invited his other dishonest friends and other disreputable, isn't that a great word, disreputable sinners. Now, Mark, parenthetically, wanted us to understand this, and this is huge. Now, there were many people of this kind. What kind? Uh, well, people that no one really wanted to spend time with, people that you didn't want your mama knowing you hung out with, people that you know were dishonest. And yeah, there were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. Interesting. It's odd, and it caused to stink. Watch this. But when the teachers of the religious law, who were Pharisees, saw Jesus, him, eating with tax collectors and other disreputable sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? Why, why does he eat with them? Why does he spend time with them? Why does he get to know them and rub shoulders with them? Watch this. Now, when Jesus heard this, which is fascinating for me because they weren't talking to Jesus, they were talking to Jesus' disciples, but Jesus overheard this. 
So Jesus butted in. He told them, well, see, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. <laughs> what? What's all this? Jesus said, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, implying those religious leaders who think they're okay, they really weren't, but they think they were. But I have come to call those who know they are sinners. The tax collectors, the disreputable sinners, the ones that everybody stiff arms and wants to stay away from, Jesus said, I came for them. In fact, let's go a step further. Jesus did this so much and so well, it became what he was known for. He became known for building close relationships with groups of people that no one else wanted to be around and nobody else was for. Jesus' reputation was that he was for people that no one else wanted to be for. Because Luke lets us know this. Luke records that tax collectors and other, I love this word too, this is like disreputable, notorious, right? Gangsters. Uh, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. In other words, Jesus was constantly having these people around, and this made the Pharisees, that same group of kind of people, and the teachers of religious law, they complained that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. In the first century, who you ate with was a big deal, a big deal. A little bit later on in 2020, uh, Lord willing, we're going to do an entire series where we kind of dive into the importance of who you eat with. Especially if you were in the first century, this was huge and what that means for us today. But the fact that Jesus was eating with these tax collectors and these notorious sinners sent a strong message that he was for people. Nobody else was for. Now, I want to point something out here, okay? When Luke wrote this in Luke chapter 15... Right after he got to this part, even eating with them, Luke does something amazing. He then records three of Jesus' parables, stories, back to back to back. That right after this statement that you know, they were all upset because Jesus was hanging out with these people that no one else wanted to spend time with. Remember, Jesus was for people because he wanted to communicate that God was for them. Right after this, Luke records three parables, back to back to back. The first one, because he wanted to make a point, the first one was a parable about a lost sheep and how this shepherd had a hundred sheep and one of them wandered off. And so he left the 99 to go find the one. And you would think, why would you leave the 99? Because he wanted to send a message that he was going to do whatever it took to find that one, that one that maybe he had it coming to him, maybe he wasn't listening, maybe, you know, he was a bad sheep, maybe he, <laughs> maybe he just wasn't the kind of sheep that he should have been, but Jesus wanted to send the message that God was the kind of God that he's going to go looking for the one that has wandered off. He is for those that others might just say, oh, let them go, let them go. Then right after he talked about the lost sheep, he told the story of a lost coin where a woman had 10 silver coins. She lost one. And she turned the house upside down, sweeping and going into great pain and detail to find that one. And when she found it, she celebrated and saying, look, I found my coin. Why did he tell that? Because he wanted to make his point a second time. 
That's like God. That's who God is. God is for people. He searches for the ones that, well, I've still got nine. Who cares about the one? And, you know, just let it go. At least I have nine. No, he wanted to find it. And then he told the story of the lost son. The lost son. Lost sheep, lost coin, now the lost son. The lost son wanted his inheritance early from his father. Went off and blew it and, and just lost everything. Embarrassed himself, embarrassed his father, embarrassed his family, and everybody knew about it. Until he came to his wit's end, had nowhere else to go, nothing else to do. He decides to humbly grovel and come home and throw himself the mercy of his father. And the story goes that when the father saw his son coming home a long way off, he runs to meet him with open arms and begins celebrating him in forgiveness and throws a party. Why did Jesus tell these stories? And Luke recorded them back to back to back. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Because he wanted to send the message that God is for people, especially and even the ones that no one else is for. Jesus was for him because he wanted people to know that God was for him. And here's the deal. That's good news for you. And that's good news for me because God is for you too, and you need to know it. doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've been guilty of. God is for you. He is for you. Let me show you. Paul writes this to the Romans. He says, God showed his great love for for us, by sending Christ to die, by sending his son Jesus to die for us, look at this, while we were still sinners. In other words, before you and I could be for God, he was for us, and Jesus is proof. Before we took a step in his direction, he took a step in our direction. Before we were for him. In any way, he was for us. What does this mean for me and you? Well, as followers of Jesus, as part of a local church, you and I must be for people so that they will know God is for them. Just like, just like Jesus, because we're here to continue the work of Jesus. We're here to continue what Jesus was doing on the earth. Jesus is for people so that they would know that God is for them. And so you and I must be for them so that they will know that God is for them. Which means if we are not for them, we'll talk about what that looks like in a minute. But if we are not for them, they may not know God is for them. They may assume that God is against them because of their sin. And against them because they've messed up. And against them because they have failed. And against them because they've broken the rules. So if we don't let people know, they may not know, and they may assume God is against them. Now here's the deal. There was a day when the local church got this right, and the local church was known among the world and in culture. They were known for being for especially the ones that no one else was for. In the first century, in the second century, on even into the beginning of the third century, the local church was known for being for people so that they would know that God is for them. Yeah, the local church and Christians in those early centuries, in those early days, that early church, their reputation was they walked towards the messes. They rolled up their sleeves and, and they 
They served the sick and the poor and the diseased and the outcasts and all of those that were rejected by society. The church had a reputation of walking towards and being for them. That's, that's what the church was known for back then. They weren't known for their doctrine. The early church was not known for its belief system. The early church wasn't even known for its traditions. It's not old enough to have a lot of traditions yet. They were known for being for. But somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way, and, and I believe that can be traced. If you go back into church history, you can kind of see it begin to develop. But it's very prevalent today. Somewhere along the way, the local church began to be known for their doctrinal stances. Unfortunately, their doctrinal stance against things and people and their belief system against things and people and their traditions that push out people that don't fit in or do things a certain way. Somewhere along the way, the church lost what it was meant to be for. And the church became against anyone who disagreed with them. By the way, if you do your church history, that's where denominations came about. All your different denominations, you go all the way back and keep tracing it back. Ultimately, denominations were birthed more times than not. Now, there are a few exceptions, but more times than not, denominations, even the ones we have today, and sometimes especially the ones we have today, were birthed out of disagreements. Well, we don't believe what you believe, and we don't like the way you live, and we don't see it the way you see it, so we're going to go over here and start our own little group under this name, under this heading. It's all about what we're against. Listen, Summit Church, listen very carefully. It's time for us to get back to being known for what, not what we're against, but who we are for. People need to know that God is for them. People need less of our opinion and more of our love. Less of our opinion and more of us being for them. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, yeah, but what about people who don't believe what we believe? What about people who believe the wrong things? What about people who don't do what we do and they do the wrong things? What about people who don't live like we live and they live the wrong way? Now, first of all, let's be very careful not to set yourself or me or any of us up as the standard of anything because, y'all, we're not the standard. Jesus is. But still, what about, what about, you know, just anything goes? Here's what you need to know. You can be for people even though you're not for what they are for. You can be for people and love them even though you are not for what they are for. And this is messy, but this is the reality of loving first. Here's the truth. You won't be everything. You won't be for, rather. Let me say it like that. You won't be for everything. In fact, you can't be for everything, but you can be for everyone. You won't be and you can't be for everything, coming and going, but you can be for and must be for every single one. Parents of teenagers, you know what this is like. You know this. You know what it looks like to be for your teenager and for them and you love them and you want them to know that you love them even though you are not for all the things that they are for. You know what that's like. That's what parenting a teenager is all about, right? Uh, you can be for them and not be for the hairstyle they're wanting 
to, you know, try out. Because, you know, that changes, like with the wind kind of thing. Like, whoa, you don't wear your hair like that? I don't know about that. And you, but, but, hey, you go along with it a lot of times because you're for them. Fine, if you want to wear your hair like that, that's, that's fine. You're for them, even though you may not be for their, their style of dressing and their style of clothes. You're for them, especially even though you're not for the music that they may want to choose to listen to that drives you up the, uh, drives you up the wall, gets on your ever little loving last nerve. But you're for them. But you know that you can be for them and not be personally for everything that they are for. And here's the deal. It's true with God and you and God and me. God is for us, even though God is not for everything we are for. And there's a lot of things that I get focused on and you get focused on in our lives they're not honoring to God or pleasing to God or what God would want for us, but it doesn't mean God is not for us. God is for us often when he can't be for what we are for. And Jesus exemplified this. Jesus accepted people as they were, but did not necessarily condone their choices. Jesus helped people. He challenged them to, to grow and mature and make necessary changes. Jesus accepted them. That's how he loved them. I love what Bob Goff said. Bob Goff said this, and let me make sure I get this right. This is just incredible. Bob Goff, who's an author and activist, just a fantastic follower of Jesus, said, we make loving people a lot more complicated than Jesus did. Let me say that again. We make loving people a whole lot more complicated than Jesus did. Because Jesus was just for people. That's what he's saying. Jesus was just for them. That was his focus. We make it so much more complicated. Yeah, but they believe. Yeah, but yeah, but they do. Yeah, but they have this lifestyle. Yeah, but they go this way. But yeah, they, okay, wait, wait, just be for them. You don't have to be for everything they are for in order to be for them. Here's another angle to look at it. Here's another question to ask. Hold it up to this light just a little way and ask yourself this. Am I for what God is for? Am I for what God is for? What is God for? God is for people. Plain and simple. And you want to talk about a time in our culture that this needs to be so clear that we are for people, even though we may not be for what they are for, we are for them. Because we want them to know that God is for them. If there's ever a time this is so needed and so clear, it's now. We've already mentioned it, but let me come back to it. We're in a political year. And in a political year, a year where there's going to be a big election, we know what happens. We've been down this road before in our lifetime. We know what happens. People begin to divide themselves up against each other based upon opinions, belief systems. You fill in the blank parties, whatever. In a, in a time of our history where we are dividing up according to what we are against, it has been never more important than now. The people like me and you and us who claim and carry the name of Jesus that we would go out of our way to be for them and love them first. 
even though we may not be for what they are for. That's beside the point. Jesus gave us a beautiful example of that. An example that you and I as his followers must carry out. But here's the deal. This is not just about the Summit Church. I mean, the Summit Church, we, no mistake, we want to be for. We want to be known for for, not against. But this is more personal than our church. Because, see, this is not just about our church being for. This is about you being for and me being for. Because our church will only be for when we are for individually. Because we've said this many times about many other things. Our church cannot collectively be what we will not be individually. You and I must be for people. So that they will know that God is for them. When we serve people... When we meet needs, when we come alongside of them and walk into the mess of their lives and we help them and we guide them and we put an arm around them and journey with them. And and it's not that we're trying to change the way they think or change the way they live or get into you're right, you're wrong, I'm right. and, And no, 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 we just love them. We start with just loving them first by serving them. And meeting their needs. That's how they're going to know we are for them. I bet there are people in your life, maybe even in your family, that yeah, they would say you're against them. Maybe you're against them because of what they've done or what they've said. Against them because how they live or choices that they've made. And you need to make some changes so that they begin to believe just by the way you serve them that you are for them. There are people you work with who think you're against them, who you need to begin serving like Jesus serves so that they will know you're not against them, you're for them. And maybe if they know you're for them and you call yourself a Christian, just maybe they might ask themselves and wonder, well, if they are for me, does that mean God is for me too? Yes. You see this not just in the way we serve, but in the way we give. We communicate to our community that we are for them by the way we are generous to them and we give, even sacrificially, how Christians come to the place where we begin to do without temporary things so that we can invest monetarily into eternally significant things and send a strong message. We are for this community. We are for you. And we're going to come alongside of you And we're going to help meet these needs. We're going to come alongside of you. Maybe there's somebody in your family that you need to come alongside, somebody that you work with, somebody in your neighborhood, you need to come alongside so that they know just by how you give and by your generosity to them that you are for them. Yeah, we communicate that we are for basically by how we live our lives and the choices that we make and how we talk to people, and how we interact with people, especially people that we disagree with, especially people who disagree with us, especially people that no one else wants to be for, and no one else is going out of their way to communicate, we are for you, especially the outcast, 
the ones on the fringes, Jesus went out of his way to let people know he was for them. And now it's up to me, and it's up to you, and it's up to us. Summit Church, we must be known for who we're for, not what we're against. And in many ways, we've done a fantastic job at doing that in this community at multiple levels, but we're just getting started because there's a whole lot of people out there that don't know God is for them yet. And maybe, just maybe, if they know we are for them and we carry his name, they will know and that they will consider and they will believe that God, through Jesus Christ, is for them Let's pray. Father, thank you for being for us. Before we could be for you, thank you for taking the first steps. And thank you for so powerfully and clearly communicating that in Jesus, that it is undeniably true. Father, help us as a church and as individuals, as followers of Jesus who carry your name, who follow your son, who call ourselves Christians, help us to not be known for all the things we're against, what we're against, what we don't believe in, and what we don't like, but help us to be known and be characterized by who the people we are for. And help us to just be for everyone because you are for everyone and we don't have to see eye to eye and we don't have to agree on everything and we don't have to be for what everyone is for for us to be for them because you certainly are for us even in times when you can't be for what we have gotten ourselves into to help us help this church the summit church after 20 years more than ever be known to be for because you are for and may that change our community and even change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let me let you know that we're going to kind of change things up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we have gotten halfway into our 2020 series. This was week two. And we're going to stop it right there, and I'll explain why. We're going to stop it right there because week three and week four, we're building up to our 20-year celebration as a church. And because of the coronavirus, COVID-19, and the restrictions on meeting publicly and all of that, uh, we want to cooperate with that. And so we certainly don't want to try to celebrate a 20-year anniversary without getting to be all in the same place and our locations together. It's not much of a celebration if we can't woohoo and cheer and all that kind of stuff that we had planned. And So we're going to postpone that, and hopefully at another point in this 20th year, we will uh, do a big celebration for our 20 years of ministry in this community together and look to the future. So we're going to put that on hold. What we're going to do instead for the next two weeks is we're going to dive headfirst into this coronavirus crisis situation, and we're going to talk about it. And in fact, we're going to do a series in the next two weeks called What Now? And we're going to talk about what to do about this coronavirus, and we're going to answer the question, where's God in all of it. 
Now, now here's the deal. This is very, very timely. And we're doing this on purpose because this is where we are and this is what we're dealing with. So let's talk about it. You probably have people in your life that are asking big questions. Invite them to watch this series. And I know you may not be able to get together because of the restrictions, but invite them to watch where they are. You may have family members. You may have children, teenagers. You may have parents, somebody that you love and trust, somebody in your neighborhood that you care for who's really struggling with this. Have them join us because we're going to tackle this stuff together. Week one, we're going to talk about what you and I can do about this. And week two, we're going to talk about where's God found in all of this mess and craziness and crisis because he is here. He is here, and he's at work, and we want to help people be able to see him and understand to the best of our human ability what just might be going on, and you just might be surprised when we find out together. So for the next two weeks, we're going to tackle this. We're going to jump in together. This is a perfect opportunity for you to invite people that maybe not care anything about God and they don't care anything about church, but they care about COVID-19 and they care about this coronavirus thing. So invite them. And I'll say this right before I let you go. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to try some different things. We're going to do some different things. So it may look a little different, probably will look a little different than what we typically do. But you know us here at the summit, we like to shake things up and do things differently. So I look forward to the next two weeks. We'll come back and celebrate our 20 years a little bit later on. And um, as I've been telling you all, all along the way, Wash your hands and trust the Lord, and we'll see you next time.